Welcome to Geared for Growth. Today I'm chatting with Darren Venter, who's the founder of StratProp, which stands for Strategic Property. So he is a property investment specialist. We have a chat to him about his background growing up in South Africa, becoming a CAD technician, and what got him interested and in working in property. We have a great chat about the fundamental drivers behind property investment and how he's able to leverage his clients through the purchasing of property in growth markets with tightening vacancy rates and getting some instant equity to be able to go again. He shares some great economic insights. Uh, he's not an economist, but clearly understands the supply and demand fundamentals and the infrastructure projects that are happening around the country as well. It's a great an interview with Darren, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here he is. Darren Venter, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Mark, thanks for having me, mate. Now, for anyone that hasn't come across you, Darren, can you give us an intro into who you are and what you specialize in? Sure. So, uh, I am uh, Darren Fenter, originally from South Africa. I came over in 2008 and segued myself into the property market uh, several years back. And um, we are, so StratProp is short for strategic property. A lot of people get confused with uh, strata property, but uh, strategic mm-hmm. property. And we um, we purchase investment-rich property for our clients nationwide. And we do this by format of being able to understand what their finances look like and essentially separating them into the markets that are going to work best for them, backed by economic growth for longevity, essentially. Awesome. We're going to we're going to dive into that, of course. Beautiful. What about uh, growing up, Darren? What were the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, Mark, I'd have to say Shumi's was all over my wall. Michael Schumacher, the legend himself, the poor man. But, uh, yeah, no, it was... It was um, I think a big part of my upbringing was F1 racing, you know, watching with my dad going to, uh, as, as an old South African, we actually, the first F1 race I ever watched was in Kailami, which is one of the racetracks in Johannesburg. And, uh, right. Yeah. And I think it was the first and the last time that they ever went. I think it was 93. I'm not entirely sure, but, uh, yeah, no, it was quite a, quite a while back. And, um, yeah, Shumi was literally posted all over the wall. <laughs> How old would you have been then when you saw him race? Oh, goodness. Um, I think I might have been about 10, 11, somewhere around there. Yeah, so a fair while back. That's that's peak hero influencer time, isn't it, for a youngster? (laughs) That's it, mate. Him and Renault, they were all over over the walls. Now, we, we chatted the other day and what I found amusing was that you were surprised to hear that your South African accent hasn't gone away. <laughs> it, it, it is still obviously uh, obviously there. Can you t- tell us what it was like growing up in, in South Africa? Oh, very interesting, mate. Um, I am still quite surprised and I think it does depend on who you speak to. If, if I do speak to fellow South Africans, and I'm probably getting a little bit more Aussie twang as you've said that, but... If you do speak to um, fellow sappers, as we call them, um, we definitely, you know, they, they definitely think that I do have that Aussie twang, but, uh, and, and proudly I, I try to hold it. But, uh, yeah, no, growing up in South Africa, a very interesting place. I actually was born in Cape Town, uh, moved over to Johannesburg at a young age, obviously, with a family. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, political separation in South Africa, which is quite unfortunate. Um, but it's not just the actual population and demographics it's also the states or rather the provinces um if you take a look at the difference between 
Cape Town versus Johannesburg and Durban, the demographics in these areas are very different, but also the government control is very different. So there's a lot of demographic control throughout Australia, which is varied. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those places where it could be absolutely beautiful and incredible. And um, I still have a lot of hope for the country. I'm still proudly South African, but uh, proudly also, um, or proud rather, enough to also call myself an Australian citizen. Well, it's also convenient that I think the national colours are green and yellow for both, right? <laughs> so it kind of works. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah. We, There's we, a weird connection there. I uh, know. Yeah. Well, we go with green and gold. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, Green and gold. Yeah, yes. yeah. But, I mean, you're close enough and uh, it's uh, the colour of the Springboks, but it's also, you know, it's uh, our, our nation's colours here in Australia too. Yeah, it's. I've never had the pleasure, but um, it's a beautiful part of the world um, aesthetically. But yeah, obviously yeah. we hear a lot about the problems. All I really know is that uh, everyone eats biltong and it's violent. <laughs> it is, and I've actually got some very good um, broker partners in Australia that are South African, and it seems like every single time we catch up, there's definitely biltong on the table <laughs> during mm. the meetings, and uh, depending on how late they go, a little brandy in the as a knife cap or <laughs> as a, a post meeting wrap up if it's after five at least <laughs> good on you now let's talk about your path into property it wasn't exactly following the textbook can you sort of run us through what what you did in school and what you you wanted to do and how you ended up actually working as a cad technician yeah so um if it, well, i actually went it's, it's quite a just thinking back to the actual um, origins of it all. I actually went to an open day back in uh, Pretoria at a university called Tuts. It was Tony University of Technology. And uh, Tuts is basically a, um, a science and arts faculty university, technical university. And I went in for doing, basically I wanted to become an architect and I went into an open day and I had a look at all the different options of open day, but went into the architecture hall and tried to sign up and I needed certain grades and I don't know if it's the same here, but um, you need to have certain studies and sciences to be able to apply for um, a particular study if you're going to go into a university degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, went into the hall, had a look what my requirements needed to be, which I probably should have done a couple of years be before actually going into, <laughs> my, into my final years. But essentially, I didn't have the right, um, the right degree or the right amount of points and the right studies behind me to go into that. So I walked back to the car, head down, and uh, found the CAD studio for a uh, an arts trade and uh, went into it and had a look at how that design and uh, CAD world pretty much uh, unfolded. And, yeah, it, it really piqued my mind going into the engineering side of uh, arts manufacturing, really. And, uh, yeah, I got into that. Stayed that for four years, came over through to Australia to work in the trade uh, for a company. And along my ways, um, found out, well, I had a mate that was actually doing some property spotting. And for those who don't, who don't know what property spotting is, it's um, essentially when you find a piece of land and you validate its worth uh, through calculations by providing these figures to builders and contractors and surveyors. And essentially, you're selling a plot of land with a projected outcome for the developments that could probably possibly be put onto it. And, you know, there's a lot of builders out there or uh, construction companies who are looking for land lots, but they don't necessarily have the time to actually source the, the property. So spotting is essentially finding the property, you know, creating a scenario where 
there's a monetary return on it, providing that to the actual contractor or the, or the builder. And um, if they like the property, uh, you get a, a spotter's fee, essentially. And yep. I liked I liked the model of it. I liked the ideas. Um, but I sort of started going down into the guts of it of, you know, let's find property for people that are going to be able to really capitalize off, this, off their investments, understanding what drives areas. And I started pitching that sort of property type to the, the builders and, and to the construction guys. And I just decided, you know what, there's obviously a, a, a good um, – amount of interest in this why don't i go and see if i can figure it out for myself and that's how strap prop came alive is basically the birth of uh you know looking for investment rich property driven by economic um infrastructure injections into areas by understanding what the demographics are in the areas what, by looking what demographics need in the areas and yeah so that's where we are today and that's uh, how strap prop was born Nice. And so to, today you're working more with, say, your mum and dad investors rather than the development sort of stuff, or you do both? No, definitely the mum and dad side of things more. Um, the developing side of things is a pretty, probably a little bit of a longer game and it excludes a bit of the, uh, the mum and pop. And I like that personal touch that you can get with a mum and pop developer or mum and pop buyer rather. Um, it's also a, the, the model of the business is basically leveraging equity from initial purchases. Uh, which allows us to repurchase quickly. And for anybody who wants to get into the investment game, we all know, uh, as a mom and pop investor at least, uh, we, we want to try and get our, our ducks in a row as quick as possible. Mm. And by doing this equity leveraging through quick growth markets, um, as long as those markets have got enough infrastructure in them to recharge that growth once you extract the equity, then essentially um, that's the markets that we work with and the clients that we um, attract like that model and it's generally the guys that are you know they've, they've got their full-time jobs who are really busy and active not a lot of time and attention to be able to put towards the purchase and the acquisition process uh, they also couldn't be stuffed really <laughs> to actually <laughs> find the data um, and, and it is quite a process so yeah definitely. and it's great if you're able to outsource it to someone that's that's passionate about it when, when did you get bitten by the property bug uh, I think um, it was 2016 it started off for us uh, or for myself in, in, in the spotting section. Uh, the business opened up in 2018 officially. Um, and yeah, um, so yeah, I think it, it's, it's, been a, it's, been a, it's been a fun little ride since 2016. So the last four years have been pretty, probably quite proactive in the actual trade. Yep. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the market such as it is right now. Normally, we're recording sort of uh, a couple of weeks in advance of, of release, but I think hopefully things will be remarkably similar. But the market right now, what, what are your thoughts about some of the key things that uh, are, are going to be shifting the, the metrics? For example, the relaxation mm. of responsible lending and the new rules coming into effect. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that on its own is a whole big doozy. And, um, I think it's great. And I think it's, it's, it's good and it's bad. It's going to attract a lot of, um, so just to recap on what you're, is that you're talking about, just so that our listeners know, it's the, the new law, which is coming in March, uh, about the responsible lending relaxation. So the, the actual, um, responsibility is being moved from the lender and put onto the actual applicant's shoulders. So that means that there's going to be a lot more access to, everyday mom and pop investors who want to get into the market. And there's, you know, during COVID, all the lenders have had their, 
their their guards up and they've been pushing back quite hard. So there's a lot of pent-up demand for people to try and get into the market and find these properties that are, you know, that they've been running to purchase into but haven't been able to during COVID because of all these new restrictions that uh, and all these new um tightenings that they've had so once that opens up in march we're going to see a, a massive influx in in interest into the market and um it is going to be good because it's going to allow a lot of people to get into the market but it's also going to be bad because a lot of those investment sections where we're buying at the moment um at those stages obviously you know people catch trends and they figure out what's going on but once the sexual relaxation goes into place and opens up the uh, the the access to a whole bunch more people those areas are going to get really, really tight. And the vacancy rates, I mean, currently we're shopping at around, you know, 0.3%, 0.5%, 0.7%, which is extremely tight. Um, and that's driving a lot of interest. Now, the, the stock in these areas is also really, really tight. So trying to find extra stock in these areas uh, after March, I'm going to, I'm presuming is going to be really, really difficult. Mm. Um, and therefore, we're looking at different metric systems at the moment to try and line up ourselves to find what's going to drive market in in into the future and there's a lot of things going on that are going to be able to drive us so going into one other topic of drivers you know obviously the um uh, i don't know if you're aware of the fast track 20 but it's a whole bunch of uh government uh, funded infrastructure in, uh, basically that's being placed around australia and all up they've actually accounted for over 300 billion dollars worth of stimulus or, or funds and finance to go into the actual manufacturing of these economies. And some of these economies are smart CBDs, the airports, uh, a lot of them are obviously health and education systems, um, underground wiring for technologies. And all of these things are basically creating um, new employment in these areas right now. But also what they're doing is they're, they're creating infrastructure for years and years and years to come. So while the current markets that we're looking at at the moment are being driven by a lot of demographic movement um, in terms of migration, not immigration. And I'll get to that in a bit too, because that's a whole different story as well. But because the actual market's being driven by uh, demographic movement of, of migration within Australia, um, a lot of these fast-track projects have been fast-tracked for reasons because the government's seeing that these opportunities are where people are moving to. So they're they're, they're adding extra infrastructure into these areas to create more employment in these areas, to drive the economy in these areas, to essentially grow the land value in these areas. That's kind of how it's working with uh, the projects that are being put together right now and how they're sort of going to result in many years to come. Then I also touched on the migration versus immigration sections. Now, when the borders open up, uh, you know, so at the moment people are obviously seeking those really – uh, affluent lifestyles where they, you know, not necessarily affluent lifestyles, but more accessible lifestyles, maybe through hardship where they've gone through, you know, they lost their jobs or maybe they're looking for better pastures uh, because they've been able to, you know, exit the city and, and, and work from remote locations. So there's a lot of that going on with the demographic movement of migration. But once the borders open up in, you know, coming back into Australia, it's going to look, I think uh, what we can look forward to is finding out what other international countries that are of interest to Australia are also going to be opening up. And we know that if we look at, you know, uh, the likes of China, China's got a, group, a big population in New South Wales. Uh, we look at the likes of um, Japan, uh, the southern states, you know, Adelaide, uh, Melbourne, Taizy, 
they are a little bit more preferred. Europe and the US are kind of more preferred along the, the northern states. So it's going to be another scenario when who is going to open up first and how is that going to predict onto what marketplaces within Australia? Because it's all good that we open up our borders, but we also need to find out who's going to open up their borders for international travel as well. So um, it, it, there's a lot to look at, Mike. There's there's really yeah. so many different avenues and I can carry on for hours if you like, but I don't <laughs> think we have that. I think we could do a separate podcast on each one of those, uh, those little levers. Yeah, the, the yeah. metrics behind them are uh, exorbitant. When it comes to immigration, obviously the, the government is in a, in a great position where we've handled the coronavirus pandemic very well. We've got the opportunity to, to open up to, to select countries. Immigration was a big driver of property markets in, say, the CBD and unit apartment. What impact has, has immigration really had on the, on the property market and, and where are the areas that have been impacted by the lack of immigration in the last sort of six months? Yeah, okay. No, great. That's a fantastic question. So, obviously, there has been a, a big lack of um, interest inside the, the inner, inner markets or the inner metro markets of Australia because of this immigration lack. And, you know, as, as, as we all know and as we all hear, there's a lot of conversation um, around the media about what's happening in the major metro markets. And the reason why there's a lot of conversation about what's happening there is because that's where people reside as a, a like as a congested congruency, you know, so a lot of people live in one area and therefore the interest is there for the media to report on it. Now, we do hear that, uh, you know, that obviously the, the likes of um, Melbourne's vacancy rates have, have skyrocketed, so have uh, CBD's, uh, Sydney CBD, as well as mm. the, um, the suburban areas and the pockets around. Now, we hear all of this and, and it, it is frightening news and it is unfortunately uh, to an extent fairly true. And it's not to be dismissed. It's 100% the case. But what we don't hear is that there's a lot of areas which are actually flourishing at the moment. And the reason why is because essentially if you take, you know, you, you've got two glasses of water. If you've got both half glasses of water and you pour half of a glass of water into the other half glass or half full glass, you can have one empty glass, you can have one very full glass. That's displacement and population works the exact same way. So once you take somebody away or population away from an area, they've got to be somewhere, they've got to move somewhere that's going to actually going to work for them. So while we're getting the reports that major metro has fallen apart slightly in, in, in some of these areas, um, while we're getting these reports, we also got to understand that there's definitely going to be an increase somewhere else. And the trick is to find where that increase is. And now I sort of touched on this a little bit earlier about people moving to areas where they want to, you know, where they want to live, number one, where they are seeking work, number two, and where they are basically trying to find access to property which they can live in for financial reasons. Now, a lot of those areas are on the, the outer skirts of um, the cities or, or they might be in regional cities. So there's a lot of regional city interest going on at the moment and we're finding this through you know, even still in parts of Victoria, and we know that uh, that Melbourne's got a lot of chaos in it at the moment, but there's still good movement in Victoria. Um, there's still good movement in Adelaide. There's a few things happening there. Um, we're also seeing Sunshine Coast with uh, vacancy rates that are just an absolute, um, you know, they're, they're so tight at the moment. So while we do hear about all these um, these these media publications around how traumatic it is in the city CBD areas in Melbourne and Sydney for the likes. There's definitely 
a, a bit of truth there, and there's quite a lot of truth actually, but there's a lot that hasn't been reported in terms of the bright light. And there's a lot of bright light too. It's just about finding the markets and, um, and, and finding the markets that are growing due to the migration and not the immigration because migration has always been a very big influence. Oh, sorry, immigration has always been a very big influence for any CBD trading. And once you yes. take that away, therefore employment starts to lack. Therefore, people get, uh, you know, they lose their jobs and they have to seek employment and seek, and seek better options. If you own an apartment in the city that you were purely renting out to international students for the last couple of years, you're in for a hell ride. But um, <laughs> other parts of the country are doing really, really well. And that's something that I really wanted to ask you about. There's, we, we've, we've seen a lot of, of sea or tree change style moves where people have got the workplace flexibility and they're craving a little bit more open space or a better lifestyle or perhaps a, a lesser mortgage. Do you think this is a, a short-term trend that uh, won't really stick once things get back to normal and employers uh, require people to be back in the office? Or do you think this is, a, this is a change that's come out of the pandemic that's likely to stick around? I think it's a bit of both, Mike. Um, I think it's very circumstantial and it depends on the industry that we're looking at. Now, um, obviously, you can't fill a full city with one industry because competition will be <laughs> a whole different story. But what I think will happen and what has actually already started to happen is uh, the introduction of, um, and I touched on this earlier, of smart cities. Now, if we look, take a look at Maruchidor, for example, uh, Maruchidor's got, got a project um, – up until 2040, I think it is, with a five point, I think it is $8 billion uh, smart CBD first round injection. Um, and that's going to be a smart city with the likes of um, underground cabling to um, the US and Asia. Can't remember exactly where it is in Asia, but I think it might be Tokyo and Japan. Um, and what this is doing is it's, yes, it's bringing people, you know, obviously people are searching for those, the, the areas which they want to live in, but it's, it's, it's still open. It's still making it available for people to still have that city lifestyle in that sea change that we just spoke about. And so that's going to be the new norm. I think is that it's, it's not going to necessarily be people that are, you know, remote working for the rest of their lives. It's going to be more of a, it's a new it's a new wave of development for a lot of industries um, and a lot of new technologies are forming from this. But also, it's also uh, what's going to happen in the CBDs that are currently, you know, breaching their vacancy levels, which are everybody's really scared about, is I think that what's going to happen is the industry changes inside the CBDs are going to be quite interesting too. Now, I'm not any sort of economist. I don't, I don't claim to be. I do. It does definitely interest me a lot, as, you, as I'm sure you can hear. But yeah. I do think um, that the industries within these areas which are now lacking uh, employment, I think what's going to happen is that those industries are going to change or rather those offices are going to change uniform and they're going to start housing different types of industries. So we might see, you know, uh, recruiter offices in the CBD uh, going from like three floors to one floor. And there might be a, um, a change of industry where we're seeing uh, banks going more digital. And I don't know if you're aware, but, uh, you know, the Australian banking structure, they're trying to, they're trying to take away cash completely. And mm. once they do that, what's really going to be the need for uh, for banks and ATMs? So, yeah, exactly. And it's it's not just that effect on its own, but it's the flow-on effect. 
you know, why will people need to travel then into the CBDs as much? So therefore, the transport lines are going to be differently constructed. Uh, and that's just one little scenario in terms of the banks. But uh, obviously, if you're looking at the, the big offices of banks, that's still going to be quite a big requirement. But uh, a lot of in- industries within the city, I think they basically those offices are going to change their uniform and change the the their sort of, you know, their leasing uh, client to two very different industries in the future. Yeah, I can tell you're very passionate about it and uh, there's obviously a lot of change with a lot of the smart city projects. I mean, just I just pulled up the Sunshine Coast Council. They're now the first um, local government in Australia to have 100% electricity offset from renewals with their solar farm. You can see their yep. submarine cable and they're actually trialling uh, autonomous lawnmowers, robotic lawnmowers, <laughs> so keep an eye out for that. There's also... Um, there's also speak about um, some of the first drone activity in the northern side of Australia rather than the southern states or for the likes of Melbourne. So, you know, it's, it's also going to become one of those areas where it's, you know, tech is going to be introduced. But it's not the only place that tech is going to be introduced harder. Canberra is going through a massive tech um, introduction at the moment too. Um, yeah. And, and that obviously is is one thing that property investors need to be aware of is this in, is injection of, of capital from from governments into into cities into regional areas the projects bring people that need to to work in them or construct them sure. and that's a that's a big driver so I know that you're buying across Australia for those reasons because you keep your finger on the pulse to the to the opportunities some buyers agents will just specialize and say I only work in this particular market others go broad I know you're on the broad category what, what's the the main reason for investing broadly um, you know outside of, of understanding that there are projects that are that are bringing demand for for property yeah look so I mean let me ask you the question if, if you had an unlimited amount of money you could pretty much invest anywhere but our clients don't they have very tight pockets and um, you know some of them have uh, some of them don't have tight pockets, but some of them have tight budgets for the circumstance that they're trying to achieve within their portfolio today. So if a client comes to us and they say to us, look, we've got, uh, you know, we've got forty to $60,000 for a deposit. We want to find a property that's going to be able to uh, basically create some good cash flow for us um, under a, uh, you know, this sort of a, a turnaround prediction. So we want to be able to do cash flow. Uh, off the bat at let's say seven percent with a you know between seven and twelve percent growth per annum Um, but we want to use that and leverage as quick as possible now if you segment yourself to or if you if you restrain yourself to one population or one market rather you've literally got you know you've only got that market to look at and that's the market that you've got to shop in it's going to take you a very long time if you can't achieve that 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 purchase because of your actual property price that you're looking to buy. Number one, in fact, if ever you can even get into it. But uh, the other thing is, is that property going to actually achieve what you need to do in the, inside your portfolio? So if you're able to look through the nation and literally, and you know, I'll say this crudely, but literally filter um, the the nation's property prices. Uh, understand where you, you, what your money will actually fit into those markets, then have a look at what the vacancy rates are doing in terms of a trend projection or have been doing, then understand what the um, in, infrastructure drivers in those areas are for today's uh, growth, which is basically creating employment, but also what that in infrastructure is actually going to be able to do in years to come because you don't just want that 
uh, growth while employment lasts and then, uh, you know, fall off the bat, just like the mining booms have had. Um, mm. You actually want to know that the infrastructure is going to be able to drive you for many years to come. And that's something like a smart city CBD being introduced into an area. So once you sort of segment the price, the vacancy, the opportunity for the property that you're looking for, the vacant, uh, the um, infrastructure injection today, also how that longevity is going to last into the future. If you take all of those into account, you really do need to broaden up your market a lot to get the best opportunities because otherwise you're just going to be shopping in the markets that you might know, but that's not necessarily going to be the market that you should be investing in. So you, and you've mentioned... Sorry, Darren. No, so I was just going to say, so you're really handicapping yourself if, you, if you're tying yourself to one little zone. So you've mentioned a, a couple of times with, with clients that are wanting to increase their equity very quickly or you're purchasing in growth markets to get um, a big result quickly. Of course, all property investors like the idea that they're purchasing an investment property and within a short space of time, they've got the equity to go again. Mm. How, how are you achieving that for your clients? Well, yeah. So, I mean, you've got to find that market that's going to work for you. And there's a few things that we look for. So we obviously need to have that, that growth in the market, but we also have to have the cash flow. For us, it's really important to have the cash flow because essentially, if you're going into a purchase of a property and you're going to purchase that and go to the bank while and, and extract the equity, which you may have gained from that property's growth, if you go to the bank and you keep extracting equity uh, to, to, buy subsequent properties, but you're not getting an increase of your income, the banks end up handicapping you because you can only lend so much and your lendability is basically, come, it comes down to, you know, how well you save, what you're able to put away, uh, and but also what you are bringing in from your income every month. Mm. The more you can increase your income, the more you can borrow at the end of the day because the more you can save as well. So the bank favors cash flow rich properties. So once you purchase into a property, you find those economic drivers which are going to uplift it into the into um, a good return on your your uh, on your growth. And essentially, you take out the equity and you purchase the property. But you, if you have that cash flow behind you, you become way more trusted by the bank. They will lend you quicker. They'll lend you more. And that's how you sort of get up a tier every single time that you go into purchasing the property. And we like to do that because Essentially, we try to purchase the first property from cash and then use the equity to purchase again for all subsequent properties. So we try to ob ob pretty much uh, take away the, the option of using cash for second, third, fourth property purchases. Now, obviously, if you do have cash uh, and we are generating an income from that property anyway, you, you're typically able to step up a lot quicker as well because you can start using that income from a property through that positive gearing towards your actual deposit as well. But then there's another thing, a couple other things that we look for, and it's also, um, you know, negotiating rich properties. Um, I like to I like to say they've, they've got good new negotiation options rather than being distressed sales. Distressed selling is sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, a qualm and people don't like having that discussion um, because essentially it means that somebody's in trouble and they're looking to, release their property due to some sort of stress and you know couples unfortunately they do go through financial hardship or they might be going through a divorce and they might be going through some sort of business uh, restructuring or they might be going through um, a family separation where they're parting properties um, but these sort of uh, bits of information are accessible if you look in the right areas and if you do find those properties you can literally negotiate 
into a deal, which is number one, helping out the the actual people who are trying to release the property, but it's definitely helping out you as well as the, as the investor. And if you can negotiate into that property purchase being, you know, 10% under the, the market value, then essentially you can go into that, that purchase knowing that you're, you're going in with instant equity. So once you purchase a property, go through and get that uh, valuation done by your lender and allow them to value it to, you know, higher a, a higher amount than what you purchase it for, extract that equity out as soon as you possibly can and go again. The quicker you can extract the equity from a property, the more recovery time it has to actually recharge itself and pay itself off again in in, in the future. So what um, we're talking about there is that if you're you're taking equity from an investment property, you're obviously increasing the loan. So from a cash flow point of view, it becomes worse, but recharging is it it's actually growing to the point where the equity that you took out is is kind of back to zero because of the capital growth. Yeah, well, exactly. As soon as you start taking equity out of the property, you, your your loan to value ratio becomes less, and therefore you don't have as much you know down payment on the property. So you own less of the property and the bank does. But the most important part of actually getting that right is making sure that you're purchasing that property in an area which it does have a high economic strength, which will allow that property to grow back up in value. And that's why we buy alongside big infrastructure projects, which are essentially going to increase the land value. Because once you increase the land value, if you're buying a house on that land, then guess what? Your property value is increased. So essentially, that's that's how we do it. Is that if you can purchase the property in a in a good, rich area, uh, and when I say rich, I mean rich as in it's got the ability to grow with uh, with strength, then uh, that that's the way to sort of get into the subsequent purchases a lot easier and a lot quicker and a lot safer because your property starts to pay itself off again due to the tenancy but also the land value um, and you can use that equity to actually re-inject it into that same property at a later stage if you wanted to do manufacturing equity and um, you know building onto a two-bedroom or three-bedroom an additional room you know and then coming to you for the depreciation <laughs> so oh, there you go yeah, had to, had mail, to get mate. It, mate. <laughs> little, little sales pitch in there there we go um i don't want to sound too fm radio <laughs> um, the give for growth property investing podcast is presented by our business mcg quantity surveyors If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. So you, you mentioned negotiation, obviously being able to buy something under market value is a fantastic way to build equity straight away. As investors, we're taught to not be too emotional and to treat property investing like a business, but you've got some experience in negotiations where you've perhaps been a little bit too business-like, maybe too ruthless. Can you talk to us about this and, and help us to know where that kind of sweet spot is of not being too rude and not being too mm. soft? Yeah, look, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, sensitive point, negotiations, and you, you definitely want to go into it with a, a more of a um, politically correct approach. At the end of the day, you're dealing with a business person who's representing their clients, and I'm dealing, and I'm obviously dealing with my clients. So we're two business people having a discussion about a contract, uh, you know, transfer. 
the, the problem with property is that, or real estate, is that it is a very emotional thing and people do get their emotions tied up. So if you can go into that with a very holistic approach um, from the... Uh, from the from the actual you know the points of putting an offer through, and explaining to the vendor's agent or the vendor themselves that you know the, the property is worth X or Y or Z due to these reasons reasons, and rather educate them as to why you're offering that amount rather than just going in and saying you know this is why uh, or you know this is what I'm offering you guys take it or leave it. It doesn't build a good rapport, and rapport is very important when it comes to negotiations. Um, you know, a lot of the times when you're purchasing multiple properties in one area, you definitely need to keep these people um, on your good side because sometimes you buy from them multiple times. Mm. So definitely go into it with a, a respect and understand that they have a client to represent and you have a client to represent and that take, taking the emotion away from it is definitely the way to go into a good negotiation on a, on a holistic level where you're more able to have that discussion than an argument. And you know, it, it's one of those industries where there is a lot of heat because there's a lot of passion, because there's a lot of emotion on property. Um, but being able to separate that and put down the actual data and educating not necessarily just your client, but also educating your vendor's client, uh, or sorry, or the vendor themselves rather, or the vendor's agent, uh, educating them gets you a lot further and it gets you a lot more trust and a lot more uh understanding now there's obviously a lot of tricks that you can use inside the negotiation but uh, i definitely feel that all those tricks come down to every single circumstance at hand and you sort of have to play it out as you go but um to be fair if you can use the data in the correct way um, and you can be politically correct and do it in a very holistic approach you should be coming up above the board that's um that's some good advice, and it sounds like those negotiation tips are a, another whole podcast there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, when it comes to property investment types, is there anything particular that you favour? Now, obviously, we've we've talked about these up and coming markets with uh, decreasing vacancy rates and infrastructure. Uh, injections and that sort of thing. But when it comes to the sort of nuts and bolts of the property itself, is there a type that you favor over others? Yeah, definitely. Um, freestanding existing houses is our bread and butter. And um, we like that sort of a format on a property just because it's got the land value, which has got the option to grow. Um, and we sort of hold ourselves to that much of a restriction. If it's a, a separate home on its own own title or if it's maybe a dual key on its own title being a main house with a granny flat or something like that that's that's basically our bread and butter now when it comes down to the actual format of the house itself uh, be it you know double garage two bedroom three bathroom whatever it might be that doesn't mean anything to us until we actually have a look at the, the demographic desires so when we go into an area uh, we purchase property for our clients understanding what their budgets will fit into an area but the need for that property in that area needs to make sense so if if the requirements is for three bedrooms because the demand demographic is uh, or the demographic demand is requiring three bedrooms then that's the property that we'll look for if they're requiring double uh, two bathrooms with a swimming pool that's what they're looking for i mean that's quite quite a specific example there but essentially it's about providing whatever the demographic is looking for inside the area that you can afford to purchase in, which is backed by the data to drive it forward. 
when you when you sort of describe, I mean, everything that you've described sort of sounds fundamentally relatively simple. I don't mean to d- demean your professional tradecraft, but <laughs> like they seem like property investing fundamentals, right? There's no real secret source yet. Property investors uh, are definitely struggling to to mm-hmm. achieve their goals. I mean, I harp on about the fact that um, your, your average property investor only owns one property. Mm. How, how do you think, say, the media or, you know, Uncle Barry at the barbecue mm-hmm. on the weekend are pointing investors in the wrong direction? Mate, you're absolutely correct. It's not complicated. Um, it's very simple. Uh, it is, it's not, it's not a, a very difficult thing to get right. It, it does take time, though. Um, and it takes research and resource. So the the basic, and you asked the question about the fundamentals, but the basic fundamentals down to any um, purchase being successful comes down to time and placement. So if you're able to look in for a property in the, at the right time, in the right place, you're going to win. Now, we'll break time and placement down a little bit further. So if you're looking at buying a property, we'll go with placement first. So if you're looking at buying a property in this location, whatever that location may be, now you've got to understand, and we keep going back to it. Like you said, it's, it's literally the, the same things that I'm repeating over and over again, but you're literally looking in the place where you are able to purchase, which has enough economic stimulus to drive it for growth in the future. You're looking at that area specifically, but then you're also looking at the neighboring areas or the flanking areas around it, because essentially once those areas grow, they start merging and they become more influenced on each other. So knowing what's around you, both here and there, is your placement. So being in the right place, but then being in the right time or being there at the right time. So that's making sure that whatever infrastructure is going into those areas is going to be able to project you the growth in the right amount of time to be able to uh, really gain from that growth that's going forward. And being in that right time is, is one of the metrics that we look at for timing is actually the vacancy rate um, trend. And that sort of allows us to look at um, the tightening of markets in an area and then looking at the uh, introduction of amenity behind it for future tightening uh, going into that area. So that allows us to sort of put a bit of a timeline onto an area and understand what that um, tightening is going to look like, which is essentially going to drive the price because of the demand increase in that area. So it's literally all about bringing it in the right place at the right time. And it's, it's quite a simple philosophy it's uh, economics 101, supply and demand 101, really. Yeah. And and when it comes to the property market at the moment, it's it's a real state of flux. I mean, when it comes to tightening vacancy rates, there's probably more movement now in certain pockets than there's been for quite some time just by mm. virtue of the, uh, I don't want to say unprecedented times, but <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's assume I said something else and didn't say that because I've flipped it out term now. These but, days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's kind of sick of it. Um so there's obviously some great opportunity for investors out there at the moment. What do you think investors should be targeting? Is it, is, is it simply the divergence of tightening vacancy rates and expenditure going into a particular region? Yeah, the, look, what investors should be targeting at the moment, if they, if they do want the, the sort of you know uh, established home purchasing that we do and rather than the building and uh, you know the manufacturing of equity or manufacturing of property rather if they're looking at uh, properties in our format things to look for uh, definitely big major projects um, find out where those projects are going because essentially whenever there's a project going somewhere 
there's a need for it to be there. And the bigger that project uh, in terms of a cash spend, uh, as well as an actual uh, population introduction, um, the bigger that expenditure, then essentially the better that that project's going to achieve for our clients. Now, it's not, it doesn't come down to just expenditure. And I'll give you an example at the moment. Out in Sydney's western region, um, there's actually, it's like actually fringing Sydney's western region. Um, there's a massive project. I think it's a 580-something million dollar project, and that's going to be the introduction of data banks um, into an area. And now it sounds like, great, there's a huge amount of expenditure going into this area. What is it? Now, if you take a look at a data bank, there's probably an office of 10 to 12 people that, that manage data bank. Uh, now, it's a lot of money going into the area, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be a lot of employment except for when they're constructing it. So if you're going in for a really quick injection, then go around there, uh, you know, if, you, if you're looking to get into a market to get out at a, at a short return, then that might be your case. And that might be the, 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 the product that you're actually looking to invest in. But essentially that market, the way that data bank is being built, is not going to live a longevity past three or four years. So your property mm-hmm. that you purchase there, uh, you might be able to yield in that property, but you're not necessarily going to get the capital growth. So Yeah, there's a big difference between building a big box and, say, an airport, right? Exactly, yeah. So an airport is obviously, you know, it's going to bring population in. There's a requirement for for that to be a good decision to, to move into. Um, whereas if you've got a small office of, you know, 10 to 12 people, it's not going to serve you in the long run. So... I'd say that the biggest thing for people to look at at the moment, uh, if they are going down the format of investing as a you know an established property, definitely look at the the properties or the projects that are going to be able to you know bring a lot of money into an area. They are spending a lot of money in an area, but they're going to essentially be able to create a lot of employment now, but also in the future in that area. So once you can you know validate that and ask the questions, why is it happening? Um, then you, you can start looking at the metrics a little bit tight, a little bit closer and, and, and figuring out if the actual data is going to line up uh, to give you the return that you're looking for. I love it. Darren, if people are wanting to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you could get us on the website. It's stratprop.com.au. It's S-T-R-A-T-P-R-O-P for strategic property. Um, strata property? No, not strata property, <laughs> as I keep explaining. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be a common question. Um, yep, either there or you can find me on LinkedIn, Darren Fenter, um, or yeah, Facebook pages, which is Stratprop uh, AU or Instagram Stratprop. Yep. You're across all the socials. TikTok? Nah, not for us. <laughs> I'm sure it has validity, but uh, I'm not sure about our audience <laughs> yeah, these days. Either. Not yet. Maybe something to not look for in the future. Let's be late adopters. There you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mate, don't, now, don't, if, don't worry. I've seen you on there. I've got your dance moves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Old, old snake hips, Mortlock, they call me. Um, Darren, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to, to property investors, and, we, you know, we've shared some, some great advice on all sorts of different uh, facets, but if we could narrow it down to one little snippet, what would it be? Educate yourself. Stay away from the mainstream media. Um, clickbait is a big thing. Um, and it is a real thing. Um, mainstream media will definitely report what is um, going to catch your attention. But uh, 
what they're not reporting is maybe all the upsides. And, and don't get me wrong, there's definitely a lot of upsides, but I'd say 100% do your own due diligence and do your own uh, homework. I couldn't agree stronger with that sentiment, Darren. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Cheers. Cheers.